Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the world of Percy Jackson. In this episode we're going to read chapters 9 through 10 and, sorry, 11 through 12. And in the previous episode we read chapters 9 through 10 and it seemed that Leo and the rest of the gang got attacked by a cup, by a bunch of monkeys. Oh, wait, actually, they got a, attacked by a bunch of dwarves and now they're trying to figure out how to exactly combat against them. So now we're going to read chapter 11, Leo. To see how exactly what happens and if are they able to sword off the dwarves, dwarf pirates. So now we're going to read chapter 11, Leo. Leo was vaguely aware of Hazel shouting, Go! I'll take care of Nico! As if Leo was going to turn back. Sure, he had hoped D'Angelo was okay, but he had headaches of his own. Leo batted up the steps with Jason and Frank behind him. The situation on deck was even worse than he'd feared. Coach Edge and Piper were struggling against their duct tape bonds while one of the demon monkey dwarves danced around the deck, picking up whatever wasn't tied down and sticking it in his bag. He was maybe uh, four feet tall, even shorter than Coach Edge, with bowed legs and chimp-like feet. His clothes so loud, they gave Leo vertigo. His green plaid pants were pinned at the cuffs and held up with bright red suspenders over a striped pink and black woman's blouse. He wore half a dozen gold watches on each arm and a zebra-patterned cowboy hat with a price tag dangling from the brim. His skin was covered with patches of scraggly red fur, though 90% of his body hair seemed to be concentrated in his magnificent eyebrows. Leo was just forming the thought, where's the other dwarf, when he heard a behind him and realized he'd led his friends into a trap. Duck! He hit the deck as the explosion blasted his eardrums. Note to self. Leo thought groggily. Do not leave boxes of magic grenades where dwarves can reach them. At least he was alive. Leo had experimented with all sorts of weapons based on the Archimedes sphere that he recovered in Rome. He built grenades that could spray acid, fire, shrapnel, or freshly buttered popcorn. Hey, you never know when you're going to get hungry in battle. Judging from ringing in Leo's ears, the dwarf had detonated the flashbang grenade, which Leo had filled with a rare vial of Apollo's music pure liquid extract. It didn't kill, but it left Leo feeling like he'd just done a belly flop off the deep end. He tried to get up. His limbs were useless. Someone was tugging at his waist? Maybe a friend was trying to help him up? No. His friends didn't smell like heavily perfumed monkey cages. He managed to turn over. His vision was out of focus and tinted pink, like the world had been submerged in strawberry jelly. A grinning, grotesque face loomed over him. The brown furred dwarf was dressed even worse than his friend, in a green bowler hat like a leprechaun's, dangly diamond earrings, and a white and black referee's shirt. He showed off the prize he'd just stolen. Leo's tool belt, then danced away. Leo tried to grab him, but his fingers were numb. The dwarf frolicked over to the nearest ballista, which his red-furred friend was priming to launch. The brown-furred friend, Dwarf, jumped onto the projectile like it was a skateboard, and his friend shot him into the sky. Redfur pranced over to Coach Hedge. He gave the satyr a big smack on the cheek, then skipped to the rail. He bowed to Leo, doffing his zebra cowboy hat, and did a backflip over the side. Leo managed to get up. Jason was already on his feet, stumbling and running into things. Frank had turned into a silverback gorilla. Why? Leo wasn't sure. Maybe to commune with the monkey doors. But the flash grenade had hit him hard. He was sprawled on the deck with his tongue hanging out and his gorilla eyes rolled up in his head. Piper! Jason staggered to the helm and carefully pulled a gag out of her mouth. 
don't waste your time on me. She said, go after them. At the mast, Coach Hedge mumbled. Leo figured that meant, kill them. Easy translation, since most of the coach's sentences involved the word kill. Leo glanced at the control console. His Archimedes sphere was gone. He put his hand to his waist where his tool belt should have been. His head started to clear, and his sense of outrage came to a boil. Those, those dwarves had attacked his ship. They'd stolen his most precious possessions. Below him spread the city of Bologna, a jigsaw puzzle of red tile buildings in a valley hemmed by green hills. Unless Leo could find the dwarves somewhere in that maze of streets, nope. Failure was not an option. Neither was waiting for his friends to recover. He turned to Jason. You feeling good enough to control the winds? I need a lift. Jason frowned. Sure, but... Good, Leo said. We've got some monkey dudes to catch. Jason and Leo touched down in a big piazza lined with white marble government buildings and outdoor cafes. Bikes and Vespas clogged the surrounding streets, but the square itself was empty except for pigeons and a few old men drinking espresso. None of the locals seemed to notice the huge Greek warship hovering over the piazza, or the fact that Jason and Leo had just flown down. Jason wielding a gold sword, and Leo... Well, Leo pretty much empty-handed. Where to? Jason asked. Leo stared at him. Well, I don't know. Let me pull my dwarf tracking GPS out of my tool belt. Oh. Wait, I don't have a dwarf tracking GPS. Or my tool belt. Fine, Jason grumbled. He glanced up at the ship as if to get his bearings and pointed across the piazza. That ballista fired the first dwarf in that direction. I think. Come on. They waded through a lake of pigeons and maneuvered down a side street of clothing stores and gelato shops. The sidewalks were lined with white columns covered in graffiti. A few panhandlers asked for change. Leo didn't know Italian, but he got the message loud and clear. He kept patting his waist, hoping his tool belt wouldn't magically reappear. It didn't. He tried not to freak, but he'd come to depend on that belt for almost everything. He felt like someone had stolen, stolen one of his hands. We'll find it, Jason promised. Usually, Leo would have felt reassured. Jason had a talent for staying level-headed in a crisis, and he'd gotten Leo out of plenty of black, bad scrapes. Today, though, all Leo could think of was a stupid fortune cookie he had opened in Rome. The goddess Nemesis had promised him help, and he'd gotten it. The code to activate the Arquity's sphere. All the time, Leo had no choice but to use it if he wanted to save his friends. But Nemesis had warned that her help came with a price. Leo wondered if that price would ever be paid. Percy and Annabeth were gone. The ship was a hundred mi of miles off course, heading toward an impossible challenge. Leo's friends were counting on him to beat a terrifying giant, and now he didn't even have his tool belt or his Archimedes sphere. He was so absorbed with feeling sorry for himself that he didn't notice where they were until Jason grabbed his arm. Check it out. Leo looked up. They arrived in a smaller piazza. Looming over them was a huge bronze statue of a buck-naked buck Neptune. Ah, jeez. Leo averted his eyes. He really didn't need to see a godly groin this early in the morning. The sea god stood on a big marble, marble column in the middle of a fountain that wasn't working, which seemed kind of ironic. On either side of Neptune, little winged Cupid dudes were sitting kind of chilling like, what's up? Neptune himself, avoid the groin, was throwing his hip to one side in an Elvis Presley move. He gripped his trident loosely in his right hand and stretched his left hand out like he was blessing Leo. Or possibly attempting to levitate him. Some kind of clue? 
Leo wondered. Jason frowned. Maybe. Maybe not. There's statues of the gods all over the place in Italy. I'd just feel better if we ran across Jupiter or Minerva. Anybody but Neptune, really. Leo climbed into the dry fountain. He put his hand on the statue's pedestal and a rush of impression surged through his fingertips. He sensed celestial bronze gears, magical levers, springs, and pistons. It's mechanical, he said. Maybe a door way to the dwarf's leaky secret lair? Ooh, shrieked a nearby voice. Secret lair? I want a secret lair! Yelled another voice. Jason stepped back, his sword ready. Leo almost got whiplash trying to look in two places at once. The red fur dwarf in the cowboy hat was sitting about 30 feet away at the nearest cafe table, sipping an espresso held by his monkey-like foot. The brown fur dwarf in the green bowler was perched on the marble pedestal at Neptune's feet, just above Leo's head. If we had a secret house, if we had a secret lair, said red fur, I would want a firehouse pole. And a water slide, said brown fur, who was pulling random tools out of Leo's belt, tossing aside wrenches, hammers, and staple guns. Stop that! Leo tried to grab, grab the dwarf's feet, but he couldn't reach the top of the pedestal. Too short? Brown first sympathized. You're calling me short? Leo looked around for something to throw, but there was nothing but pigeons, and he doubted he could catch one. Give me my belt, you stupid... No, now, said Brown fur. We haven't even introduced ourselves. I'm Akmon, and my brother over here is the handsome one. The red fur dwarf lifted his espresso, judging from his distant eyes dilated eyes and his maniacal grin. He didn't need any more caffeine. Pasalos, singer of songs, drinker of coffee, stealer of shiny stuff. Please, shrieked his brother Akmon. I steal much better than you. Pasalos snorted. Stealing naps, maybe. He took out a knife, Piper's knife. He started picking his teeth with it. Hey, Jason yelled. That's my girlfriend's knife. He lunged at Pasalos, but the red fur dwarf was too quick. He sprang from his chair, bounced off Jason's head, and did a flip and landed next to Leo, his hairy arms around Leo's waist. Save me, the dwarf pleaded. Get off! Leo tried to shove him away, but Pasalos did a backward somersault and landed out of reach. Leo's pants promptly fell around his knees. He stared at Pasalos, who was now grinning and holding a small zigzaggy strip of metal. Somehow, the dwarf had stolen the zipper right off Leo's pants. Give stupid zipper! Leo started trying to shake his fist and hoist up his pants at the same time. Eh, not enough. Pasalos tossed it away. Jason lunged with his sword. Pasalos launched himself straight up and was suddenly sitting on the statue's pedestal next to his brother. Tell me I don't have moves, Pasalos boasted. Okay, Ekmon said. You don't have moves. Bah! Pasalos said. Give me the tool belt. I want to see. No! Akmon elbowed him away. You got the knife and the shiny ball! Yes, the shiny ball is so nice. Pasalos took off his cowboy hat. Like a magician producing a rabbit, he pulled out the Archimedes sphere and began tinkering with the ancient bronze dials. Stop! Leo yelled. That's a delicate machine! Jason came to the side and glared up the dwarves. Who are you two anyway? The Cocopus! The Cocopus! Akmon narrowed his eyes at Jason. I bet you're a son of Jason. I can always tell. Just like Black Bottom. Pastels agreed. Black Bottom? Leo resisted the urge to jump at the dwarf's feet again. He was sure Pastels was going to ruin the Archimedes sphere any second now.
Yes, you know, Akmon grinned. Hercules? We called him Black Bottom back in the day because he used to go around without clothes. He got so tan that his backside, well, at least he had a sense of humor, Paso said. He was going to kill us when we stole from him, but he let us go because he liked our jokes. Not like you two. Grumpy, grumpy. Hey, I've got a, I've got a sense of humor. Leah snarled. Give me back our stuff, and I'll tell you a joke with a good punchline. Heh, <laughs> nice try! Aquan pulled a ratchet wrench from the tool belt and spun it like a noisemaker. Oh, very nice! I'm definitely keeping this! Thanks, Blue Bottom! Blue Bottom? Leo glanced around. His pants had slipped around his ankles again, revealing his blue undershorts. That's it! He shouted. My stuff, now! Or I'll show you how funny a flaming dwarf is! His hands caught on fire. Now we're talking. Jason thrust his sword into the sky. Dark clothes began to gather over the piazza. Thunder boomed. Oh, scary! Yes, Pascalus agreed. If only we had a secret lair to hide in. Alas, this statue is in the doorway to a secret lair, Akamon said. It has a different purpose. Leo's gut got twisted. The, free, the fires died in his hands, and he realized something was very wrong, and he yelled, Trap! and dove out of the fountain. Fortunately, Jason was too busy summoning his son. Leo rolled on his back as five golden cords shot from the Neptune statue's finger. One barely missed Leo's feet, the rest honed in on Jason, wrapping him like a rodeo calf and yanking him upside down. A bolt of lightning blasted the times of Neptune's trident, sending arcs of electricity up and down the statue. Bercocopus had already disappeared. Bravo! Akamon applauded from a nearby cafe table. You make a wonderful pinata, son of Jupiter. Yes, Pascals agreed. Hercules hung us upside down once, you know. Oh, revenge is sweet. Leo summoned a fireball. He lobbed at Pascals, who was trying to juggle two pigeons in the Archimedes sphere. Eek! The dwarf jumped free of the explosion, dropping the sphere and letting the pigeons fly. Time to leave, Akmon decided. He dipped his bowler and sprang away, jumping from table to table. Pascals glanced at the Argonis sphere, which had rolled between Leo's feet. Leo summoned another fireball. Try me, he snarled. Bye! Passos did a backflip and ran after his brother. Leo scooped up the Argonis sphere and ran over to Jason, who was still hanging upside down, though thoroughly hogtied, except for his sword arm. He was trying to cut the cords with his gold blade, but having no luck. Hold on, Leo said. If I can release... If I can find a release switch... Just go! Jason growled. I'll follow you when I get out of this. But don't lose them. The last thing Leo wanted was some alone time with the monkey dwarfs, but the Carcopus were already disappearing around the far corner of the piazza. Leo left Jason hanging and ran after them. And that's the end of chapter 11. Well, that was certainly more... That, that definitely had a lot of, you know, details in it that... I think that sometimes helps you with the character development. Like, for example, in this scene, it's that, you know, it's more up to Leo now. Leo, Jason, Piper, all of these people, because Percy and Jackson are now gone, that duty and responsibility has been transferred over to someone like, you know, Leo and Jason. And I think that that's really important to point out because we can see how exactly it goes from a group of awkward silence, just not talking to each other, to starting to realize what the value of teamwork is and where they can get with that value.
so yeah i think this was an awesome chapter um after the break don't go anywhere maybe grab a quick snack or maybe grab some water and get ready for this next part of the episode and right after that we're gonna do a q a session and we're back from the break uh so now we're gonna read chapter 12 leo the doors didn't try very hard to lose him, which made Leo suspicious. They stayed just at the edge of his vision, scampering over red tile rooftops, knocking over window boxes, whooping and hollering and leaving a trail of screws and nails from Leo's tool belt. Almost as if they wanted Leo to follow. He jogged after them, cursing every time his pants fell down. He turned a corner and saw two ancient stone towers jutting into the sky side by side, much taller than anything else in the neighborhood. Maybe medieval watchtowers? They leaned in different directions like gear shifts on a race car. Their kirkopies scaled the tower on the right. When they reached the top, they climbed around the back and disappeared. Had they gone inside, Leo could see some tiny windows at the top, covered with metal grates. But he doubted those would stop the dwarves. He watched for a minute, but the kirkopies didn't reappear. Which meant Leo had to get up there and look for them. Great, he muttered. No flying friend to carry him up. The ship was too far away to call for help. He could jury-rig the Archimedes Sphere into some sort of flying device, maybe, but only if he added his whole tool belt, which he didn't. He scanned the neighborhood trying to think. Half a block down, a set of doubled glass doors opened, and an old lady hobbled out, carrying plastic shopping bags. A grocery store? Hmm. Leo patted his pockets. To his amazement, he still had some Euro notes from his time in Rome. The stupid doors had taken everything, except his money. He ran for the store as fast as his zipperless pants allowed. Leo scoured the aisles, looking for things he could use. He didn't know the Italian for, hello, wear your dummy dangerous chemicals, please. But that was probably just as well. He didn't want to end up in an Italian jail. Fortunately, he didn't need to read labels. He could just tell from picking up a toothpaste tube whether it would contain potassium nitrate. He found charcoal, he found sugar, and baking soda. The store sold matches and bug spray and an aluminum foil pretty much everything he needed, plus a laundry cord he could use as a belt. He added some Italian junk food to the basket, just to sort of disguise his more suspicious purchases, then dumped his stuff at the register. A wide-eyed checkout lady who asked him some questions he didn't understand, but he managed to pay, get a bag, and race out. He, dug, he ducked into the nearest doorway where he could keep an eye on the towers. He started to work, summoning fire to dry out materials, and do a little cooking that otherwise would have taken days to complete. Every once in a while, he sneaked a look at the tower, but there was no sign of the dwarves. Leo could only hope that they were still up there. Making his arsenal took just a few minutes. He was that good, but it felt like hours. Jason didn't show. Maybe he was still tangled at the Neptune fountain or scouring the streets looking for Leo. No one else from the ship came to help. Probably it was taking them a long time to get all those pink rubber bands out of Coach Hedge's hair. That meant Leo had only himself, his bag of junk food, and a few highly improvised weapons made from sugar and toothpaste. Oh, and the Archimedes Sphere. That was kind of important. He hoped he hadn't ruined it by filling it with chemical powder. He ran to the tower and find the entrance. He started up the winding stairs inside, only to be stopped at a ticket booth by some caretaker who yelled at him in Italian. Seriously? Leo asked. Look, man, you've got dwarves in your belfry. I'm the exterminator. He held up his can of bug spray. See? Exterminator Molto Bueno. Bueno. Squirt, squirt. Ah! 
He pantomimed a dwarf melting in terror, which for some reason the Italian didn't seem to understand. The guy just held out his palm for money. Dang, man, Leo grumbled. I just spent all my cash on homemade explosives and whatnot. He dug around his grocery bag. Don't suppose you'd accept, uh, whatever these are? Leo held up a yellow and red bag of junk food called Fonzie's. He assumed there were some kind of chips. To surprise, the caretaker shrugged and took the bag. Avanti! Leo kept climbing, but he made a mental note to stock up on Fonzie's. Apparently, they were better than cash in Italy. The stairs went on and on and on. The whole tower seemed to be nothing but an excuse to build a staircase. He stopped on the landing and slumped against a narrow barred window, trying to catch his breath. He was sweating like crazy, and his heart thumped against his ribs. Stupid Kirkupus. Leo figured that as soon as he reached the top, they would jump away from before he could use his weapons. But he had to try. He kept climbing. Finally, his legs feeling like overcooked noodles, he reached the summit. The room was about the size of a broom closet, with barred windows on all four walls. Shoved in the corners were sacks of treasures, shiny goodies spilling all over the floor. Leo spotted Piper's knife, an old leather-bound book, and a few interesting-looking mechanical devices, and enough gold to give Hazel's horse a stomachache. At first, he thought the dwarves had left. Then he looked up. Akmon and Pestilos were hanging upside down from the rafters by their chimp feet, playing anti-gravity poker. When they saw Leo, they threw their cards like confetti and broke out in applause. I told you he'd do it! Akamon shrieked in delight. Paslo shrugged and took off one of his gold watches and handed it to his brother. <laughs> you win. I didn't think it was that dumb. They both dropped to the floor. Akamon was wearing Leo's tool belt. He was so close that Leo had to resist the urge to lunge for it. Paslo straightened his cowboy hat and kicked open the grid on the nearest window. What should we make him climb next, brother? The Dome of San Luca? Leo wanted to throttle the dwarves, but he forced a smile. Oh, that sounds fun. But before you guys go, you forgot something shiny. Impossible, Akmon scowled. We are very thorough. You sure? Leo held up his grocery bag. The dwarves inched closer as Leo had hoped. Their curiosity was so strong that they couldn't resist. Look. Leo brought out his first weapon. A lump of dried chemicals wrapped in aluminum foil and lit it with his hand. He knew enough to turn away when it popped, but the dwarves were staring right at it. Toothpaste, sugar, and bug spray weren't as good as Apollo's music, but they made for a pretty decent flashbang. Their cocopus wailed, clawing at their eyes. They stumbled toward the door, but Leo set off his homemade firecrackers, snapping them around the dwarves' bare feet to keep them off balance. Then, for good measure, Leo turned the dial on his archery sphere, which unleashed a plume of foul white fog that filled the room. Leo wasn't bothered by smoke. Being immune to fire, he'd stood smoky bonfires, endured dragon beth, and cleaned out blazing forges a plenty of times. While the dwarves were hacking and wheezing, he grabbed his tool belt from Akmon, calmly summoned some bungee cords, and tied up the dwarves. My eyes! Akmon coughed. My tool belt! My feet are on fire! Pestles wailed. Not shiny! Not shiny at all! <laughs> After making sure they were securely bound, Leo tracked the Kirkupus into one corner and began rifling through their treasures. He retrieved Piper's dragger, a few of his prototype grenades, and a dozen other odds and ends the dwarves had taken from the Arbor II. Please, Akmon wailed, don't take our shinies. We'll make you a deal, Pestler suggested. We'll cut you in for 10% if you let us go. Afraid not, Leo muttered. It's all mine now. 20%. 
Just then, thunder boomed overhead. Lightning flashed, and the bars on the nearest window burst into sizzling, melting stubs of iron. Jason flew in like Peter Pan, electricity sparking around him and his gold sword steaming. Leah whistled appreciatively. Man, you just wasted an awesome entrance. Jason frowned. He noticed the hog-tied Kirkupus. What the? All by myself, Leah said. I'm special that way. How'd you find me? Uh, the smoke, Jason managed. And I heard popping noises. Were you having a gunfight in here? Eh, something like that. Leo tossed him Piper's dagger, then kept rummaging through the bags of dwarf shinies. He remembered what Hazel had said about finding a treasure that would help them with the quest, but he wasn't sure what he was looking for. There were coins, gold nuggets, jewelry, paper clips, foil wrappers, cufflinks. He kept coming back to a couple of things that didn't seem to belong. One was an old bronze navigation device, like an astrolabe from a ship. It was badly damaged and seemed to be missing some pieces, but Leo still found it fascinating. Take it! Pascalos offered. Uh, Odysseus made it. You, you know? Take it and let us go. Odysseus? Jason asked. Like the Odysseus? Y yes! Pascalos squeaked. Made it when he was an old man in Ithaca. One of his last inventions and we stole it. How does it work? Leo asked. Oh, it doesn't. Akmon said. Something about a missing crystal? He glanced at his brother for help. My biggest what if? Paslo said. Should have taken a crystal. That's what he kept muttering in his sleep. The night we stole it. Paslo shrugged. No idea what he meant, but the shiny is yours. Could we go now? Leo wasn't sure why he wanted the astrolabe. It was obviously broken, and he didn't get the sense that this was what Hecate meant for them to find. Still, he slipped it into one of his tool belt magic pockets. He turned his attention to the other strange piece of loot. The leather-bound book. Its title was in gold leaf, in a language Leo couldn't understand, but nothing else about the book seemed shiny. He didn't figure the Kirkupus for big readers. What's this? He wagged it at the doors, who were still teary-eyed from the smoke. Nothing, Akmon said. Just a book. It had a pretty gold cover, so we took it from him. Him? Leo asked. Akmon and Pasolos exchanged a nervous look. Minor god, Pasolos said. In Venice, really, it's nothing. Venice. Jason frowned at Leo. Isn't that where we're supposed to go next? Yeah. Leo examined the book. He couldn't read the text, but it had lots of illustrations. Sights, different plants, a picture of the sun, a team of oxen pulling a cart. He didn't see how any of that was important, but the book had been stolen from Minor God in Venice, the next place Hecate had told them to visit, and this had to be what they were looking for. Where exactly can we find this Minor God? Leo asked. No! Akmod shrieked. You, you can't take it back to him. If he finds out we stole it, he'll destroy you, Jason guessed. Which is what we'll do if you don't tell us, and we're a lot closer. He pressed the point of his sword against Akmon's furry throat. Okay, okay, the dwarf shrieked. La Casadera. Cali Freseria. Is that an address? Leo asked. The dwarves both nodded vigorously. Please don't tell him we stole it, Pascal begged. He isn't nice at all. Who is he? Jason asked. What god? Uh, I can't say. Paso stammered. Heh, yet better, Leo warned. No, Paso said miserably. I, I mean, I really can't say. I, I can't pronounce it. Try it. It's too hard. True, Akmon said. True, too. Too many syllables. They both burst into tears. 
Leo didn't know if the Kirkupus were telling them the truth, but it was hard to stay mad at weeping dwarves, no matter how annoying and badly dressed they were. Jason lowered his sword. What do you want to do with them, Leo? Send them to Tartarus? Please, no! Akmon wailed. It might take us weeks to come back. Assuming Gay even lets us. Paslo sniffled. She controls the doors of death now. She'll be very cross with us. Leo looked at the dwarves. He'd fought lots of monsters before and never felt bad about dissolving them, but this was different. He had to admit he sort of admired these little guys. They played cool pranks and liked shiny things. Leo could relate. Besides, Percy and Annabeth were in Pro Tartarus right now. Hopefully still alive. Trudging toward the doors of death. The idea of sending these twin monkey boys there to face that same nightmarish problem? Well, it didn't seem right. Imagine Gaia laughing at his weakness, a demigod too soft-hearted to kill monsters. He remembered his dream at Camp Apollon in ruins, Greek and Roman bodies littering the fields. He remembered Octavian speak, speaking with the Earth Goddess's voice. The Romans move east from New York. They advance on your camp and nothing can slow them down. Nothing can slow them down, Leo mused. I wonder. What? Jason asked. Leo looked at the doors. I'll make you a deal. Akmon's eyes lit up. 30%? We'll leave you all your treasure, Leo said, except the stuff that belongs to us and the astrolabe and this book, which we'll take back to the dude in Venice. But he'll destroy us, Passos wailed. We won't say where we got it, Leo promised, and we won't kill you. We'll let you go free. Oh, Leo? Jason asked nervously. Akmon squealed with delight. Oh, I knew you were smart as Hercules. I'll call you Black Bottom, the sequel. Yeah, no thanks. Leo said, but in return for us sparing your lives, you have to do something for us. I'm going to send you somewhere to steal some, some from some people, harass them, make life hard for them in any way you can. You have to follow my directions exactly. You have to swear on the river Styx. We swear, we swear, Preslo said. Stealing from people is our specialty. Oh, I love harassment, Akmon agreed. Where are we going? Leo grinned. Never heard of New York. And that's the end of chapter 12. Well, this was certainly a rather fun, more fun type of version of this entire uh, episode. I think that this whole, um, you know, thievery and then catching those thieves, it was kind of a way to essentially lighten the mood in some sense. Because before this, we were stuck in this constant cycle of, like, you know gloom and terror and everything and i think that the fact that these little monsters who aren't as bad as they seem to be at first are actually pretty nice or at least they're nicer than the other monsters that these people that these demigods have met and all they just want to do is steal and just throw fun little pranks and i think that that's where leo is really able to show his character development the fact that he's able to or at least show his personality because he's able to understand the meaning behind their pranks because he's a prankster himself he's he's the dude that loves comedy so i think that that really worked out for him because he was able to understand and be able to be a bit more lenient with them because they were able he was able to you know think about how he loves to throw pranks he loves to be that funny guy and why not there's there all there also exists monsters that want to be just like that just like leo funny so i think that Leo was truly able to show his personality and what his true character is. And I really do hope that this helps the other demigods in the group admire him more because he has just as much ability as compared to anybody else. And I think that that 
that this interaction has really let him shine through that. So now, um, now that we're done with the uh, chapters, we're going to move on to a little Q&A session. So moving on to the shout outs, where uh, number one is Bearfin, number two is Aiden, number three is Robin, and number four is J7. Again, if I skip any names, please do please let me know in this episode so that I'll try my best to get you or in the next episode. I'll try my best to get you in the next episode. Now, moving on to the questions. Number four, number one is, we know that Percy can understand horses and that Rachel wants his ability. What creature would you like to understand? Now, that's really interesting because I probably, in all honesty, I would probably want to understand birds. I think the fact that we have gone... We have evolved in a time where, you know, or maybe a bird or probably a smaller animal like a hamster or a gerbil. My reasoning behind this is probably in the world we live today, we have evolved so much to the point that we can understand sometimes the behavior of cats and dogs. You know, we've lived with them for so long. We've had them as our pets for so long. We're able to understand and they're able to understand that we've developed this kind of connection, but that connection doesn't really apply to other animals like birds or little pets like hamsters and gerbils. And although I'm not uh, someone who has these as pets, I think that just from seeing from, you know, just media and in general, I think that I would probably want to be able to understand birds a little bit more better because you know sometimes they're you know the emotions they show doesn't reflect like they're they're not the same as what a dog or a cat would show and I think I'd really want to understand the you know the feelings of a bird or just just the emotional the emotional state of a bird you know I think that dogs and cats are really able to show that in a sense but I feel like other animals like birds and you know maybe lizards or some or some other animals like that are have a harder time in expressing that kind of emotion so yeah i probably want to be able to understand one of one of those types um the next question is what are the odds of percy and annabeth coming out alive of tartarus well in all honesty i think that well first of all i think the overall you know well when we look at this entire thing, the prophecy says, you know, the seven demigods will go and face Gaia and everything. And I feel like that guarantees it. But at the same time, if we're talking real, like real, like within the story with them two, I think that realistically, if it was either one of them and the other one wasn't there, they'd probably be done for. But I think that what we've read in the previous chapters is that they're so close to just giving up. They're so close to just sitting there and being okay with rotting away in Tartarus that having the other person there for them, that brings something life-changing. That brings them that last glimpse of hope that they can maybe get through this together and that they'd be able to save the world. The amount of torture they're going through would make anyone want to give up. But because they have each other is what I believe is going to be their willpower to get out. 
those little challenges, those challenges that they have to go through with each other is going to be able to help them get through it because they have each other. And that moral support that they have from each other is all they need to get through that horrid place. So I think that it is very likely that they're going to be able to come out alive just because of the fact that they have each other. If it was one of if it was only one of them, the odds would probably be very low that they would survive. So, I think that that's my take on that and yeah, let me know if you guys want to, you know, have any other different takes on that. Um next question, who is my favorite Percy Jackson and the Olympians villain or Heroes of Olympus villain? I would probably say I think I mentioned this in a previous episode, but I would probably say my favorite is Luke. My reasoning behind that is because compared to the other villains, we only got to see, we got to see a little bit more of Luke. We got to, you know, go into his childhood. We got in, we got, got got to look at, you know, how he is now, what reasoning he provided for him to go to this side of villainy. And I think that sometimes it makes sense. That's what I, I think that's what I mentioned in the previous episode. It makes sense that because when you look at all these missions that these demigods are sent into, you know, it's a reminder that these demigods are are teens. They're like 16, 17-year-olds. They're supposed to be in high school, probably, you know, just enjoying their lives. But here they are just fighting for their lives, not knowing whether they're going to survive the next day with these monsters constantly chasing them. So I think that's where Luke's perspective really came into light. It's the fact that he was so fed up with having to do this this routine on and on again that he just thought, why not side with the monsters? Now, that's never a good thing, right? You should never side with evil. You should always persist with it. But I think that the character development that was really shown with Luke throughout the entirety of the Percy and ja- Percy Jackson and the Olympian series was able to show him how he hated being with these, you know, doing these missions for the gods, risking his life every time. But he also didn't want to join the evil side. He wanted there to be an equilibrium where he didn't necessarily need to fight these monsters and he didn't necessarily need to be on the evil side. He just wanted to live in peace just like every other high schooler. But because of the circumstance that he was, because of the fact that he was a demigod, he just couldn't take it anymore. And near the end, we see him slowly regretting that decision because he's wrecked havoc more than he can imagine. And he starts thinking, maybe I should have been a demigod this entire time. Maybe I shouldn't have chosen evil. And that's where he realizes whether he made the right decision at all. And I think that's where we really get to understand him. And I think that's, I'm, I'm, I, I truly think that's why he's one of my favorite villains of all time. Because he's got some really good character development to him. Um, the next question, would you rather fall into Tartarus or alone, have Roman demigods hunt you down, or battle all the giants? Honestly, I think I would probably have Roman demigods hunt you down, because, again, falling into Tartarus alone, no chance. Battle all the giants, yeah, no chance either. I'd probably say with the, having the Roman demigods hunt you down, if I were to have someone like Octavian heading that entire army, I'm gonna be honest, I think I'd probably... 
try my best to conceive a plan to potentially talk to them or which probably will be will 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 not work at all but I think negotiation and communication is where it really comes best because obviously they're all we're all demigods right if I was a demigod escaping from other Roman demigods, I'm sure they would have known that, you know, if I had an incident like how Leo was literally possessed by Eidolons, I'm sure they would be able to understand that. You know, we deal with monsters on a daily basis. If they aren't able to understand the fact that, you know, one of my friends was possessed by an Eidolon and that's why they got attacked, we didn't attack them on purpose. And as people who have lived with them for months, why would we have any harm? So I think, you know, having potentially a reasonable conversation, and if that doesn't work, (coughs) sorry, I feel like that would be the one to be less, the least worrisome about. That doesn't mean I'm downplaying their abilities. I'm just saying it would be, there's other options compared to the other two situations where there's practically only one option, which is kill or be killed. (laughs) Um, So yeah. Uh, what's the next one? Uh, what do you think of the first two books of the series? I think that this is definitely a fascinating, you know, start. I think that this series, these two books have definitely had a lot more excitement in my mind, in my opinion, compared to the other books. Because, you know, having Percy and Annabeth... Percy and Annabeth have always been the people... All of these demigods have been the people to send these monsters to Tartarus, but now they're the ones experiencing Tartarus for themselves, and they get to see these monsters that they've killed along the journey. I think that those moments are what really makes it intensely and really action-packed. So I think that it's definitely a bit more fascinating to read uh, comparatively. And yeah, Uh, what's the next one? Who is my least favorite character? Um, Octavian. Hands down, I absolutely despise the guy. I don't even know what what he's doing there for. It's 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 at it's at a point where you understand that he's probably he may be doing it for attention or he may be doing it just so he can be recognized. But to what extent? Right? So he's like at this point, he's destroying the lives of demigods just because he wants to be praetor, which just doesn't make sense. It's like greed has swallowed him so much that he just has no feeling whatsoever anymore. And I just find that absolutely, like, that's that's just not right. Um, next one, what is my favorite treat? I'd probably say ice cream, hands down. I just love the cold sweetness of it. Um, next one, favorite monster. Ooh. Honestly, if I'm going to be pretty honest, it might be a bit um, cliche, but, or, you know, recent. But I did like, I think the two monsters that I just read, um, that we just met in the previous chapters, they were probably some of my favorite. It uh, Akmon and um, Pasalos. Yeah, I think I really, I think I, I like them the most because they're not necessarily monsters, they are monsters. But they don't necessarily have the goals of destroying every demigod in the world and ruling it. You know, theirs is more of, you know, just being fun and playing some pranks. So I think I, I like that side of them. And I think I, uh, that those are the, I think that those, those are probably, they're probably my favorite monsters. Um, which demigod are you most like? Now that's a hard one. 
Um, I'd probably say I'm more like a combination of Leo, Annabeth. I think I'm probably a combination of Leo and Annabeth combined. Um, reason is because, uh, I don't know, I think their personalities mesh is just what is probably me. So, yeah. Uh, the next one is, was Luke a hero or a villain? Now, that's a fascinating one because in my eyes, I would probably say he was a hero. Because sometimes heroes also have to question why they do what they do. And I think that that's what was really well shown throughout the PJO, the Percy Jackson and the Olympian series. Because we had seen the times of where Luke had questioned, why is he a demigod? Why is he risking his life multiple times just for there to be another time where he needs to risk his life? And I think that sometimes, sometimes heroes waver off the path you know the path that they're supposed to take the path of them saving people sometimes they don't understand the point of them saving people they just you know sometimes that happens to them and and when they waver off that path they realize why they need to be on that path why they need to continue being on that path why that path is something that is able to, you know, it's able to answer the questions that that hero has. And I think that that's what Luke ultimately went through. He wavered off that path when he sided with Kronos. But when Kronos took over his body, he realized why he's a demigod. Why he does what he does. And that's why he tried his best to help the demigods as, as a way of killing Kronos. So I think that... In the end, I do think that Leo, Luke was definitely a hero to everybody. Um, what will I read after these books? Uh, the next question. I am not sure yet. I would probably assume that I, I, I'm, I'm thinking that I would probably read either The Trials of Apollo or Magnus Chase. Either one, whichever one comes after this one. Um, I'm planning to finish this entire uh, Percy Jackson series in chronological order. Maybe read the spinoffs as well. Um... And then potentially moving on to a different series, seeing how well that's that goes out for me. But yeah, so we'll see after I finish, you know, all these series, this series, and then we'll see from there. Um, who do you think, the next question is, who do you think Leo, who do you think could date Leo? I, honestly, I'm not sure who. Because I do see some tension between Hazel and Leo. But that probably is just because Hazel had a crush on Leo's great-grandfather. And I think it's just awkward at that point between them. So, I mean, I don't think there's any romantic romanticness between them. But I definitely do think Leo will definitely find someone. I don't think he's going to stay the seventh wheel for too long because... With the personality he has, with the bubbliness and the energeticness, there has to be someone that's just in love with what he has. And I think that there will be someone that will come for that very, very soon. Um, how do you think Annabeth and Percy will survive? Honestly, I think that they are definitely going to meet monsters that they've seen 
the, and that they've killed. And that's going to be a, quite a challenge for them because they're probably half... They've lost their mental sanity and everything throughout this entirety of this entire trip. But I have a feeling that after defeating, you know, I think they're going to be able to, you know, come up with some pretty good plans in order to defeat both the army that's guarding the doors and to defeat the monsters that once remembered who they were. Um, so, yeah, thank you guys for these questions. I really appreciate it. And... Once again, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Uh, Stay tuned for the next episode as we continue to read chapters 13 to 14. And if you guys would like to, uh, you can support me on my Patreon, which is in the bio of my, uh, which is in the bio or description of my podcast. And um, yeah, it's totally optional, but I really appreciate it. So until next episode, stay safe and stay out of boredom.